Old Testament reading is uh, from Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a passage where we uh, see that a situation where God's people had forgotten who God was in a way. They had uh, had a period of of, uh, of wandering spiritually and forgetting who God was and is and called them to be. And here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see this uh, wonderful uh, public expression, public remembrance of God, uh, who God is, praising God, but also giving a very particular uh, remembrance of an act of God uh, within His people Israel, which was that He is the God who who chose them. And uh, we'll talk a bit more about that uh, during the sermon today, but I want to invite forward uh, John to read Nehemiah uh, 9, 5 to 8. Nehemiah 9, beginning at verse 8. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sarabiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, that it may be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth that is all that is in it, the seas, and all that is in them. You give life to everlast for everything, and multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gergesites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. This is the word of the Lord. I didn't mean to give John a list of such names, those are hard ones to pronounce, but I uh, heard those read a lot in worship. That's the smoothest <laughs> set that I've, I've heard read, so thank you, John, for uh, getting through those and, and reading those uh, for us, and also that wonderful promise of, of God choosing Abraham. Well, uh, our reading from the New Testament today is Ephesians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse uh, 3. I'll just read these for us. Paul writes these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. This is the word of the Lord. Let us, let's, let us pray. Lord, thank You for this, Your word to us as we continue in this series on our identity and Your eternity. We humble our hearts before You and pray that you would send your spirit among us to apply your word to our hearts. May we hear the truth that you have for us today, be changed, be challenged, be comforted, be sent from here in accordance with your will. We ask you, Lord, that you would speak for we, your servants, are listening through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
But one of the things we talked about last week in this series on identity is, um, well, we learned a couple, three keys about identity. We learned that our fundamental self-understanding comes from outside us. Remember that one? We identified the fact that our identity as people needs to be seen as achieved, uh, not as achieved, but as received first. And we also uh, learned that as we live, we live in this current time in two worlds in a way, in Ephesus and in Christ. And we're called to consider deeply how we're shaped by those two worlds. So this morning, I want us to continue, if we could, on this six-part series, Our Identity in God's Eternity. Now, uh, recently, maybe actually earlier this week, I got sent this podcast from someone, and I listened to the whole thing, uh, really enjoyed it, and it was from the Fuller Youth Institute. And it was speaking about and to a researcher who had done all kinds of research on our current cultural climate. And he was saying that uh, when it comes to our culture, especially for youth today, there are three, and I think for all of us in a way, there's three things that are sought after and are important and on the top of uh, people's minds, which are these. Uh, what is the meaning that I have in my life? What is the purpose I have in my life? And thirdly, what is my identity? Those are the three things that many youth in our culture uh, seek after and are concerned about. And today in this series, we're talking about our identity. Maybe one of the best examples of this search around identity in our culture today, not only for, I think, young uh, youth, but also for people of all ages, is uh, seen in this movie that was out recently. Um, and this song that is tied in with this movie. See if this one sounds familiar. It's about this girl who has inside her a superpower. And the thing is that every time she touches something, that person, what happens to that thing? It gets frozen. Okay. That's inside her, right? Uh, and uh, she struggles with this. In fact, she... Uh, as the movie begins, there's kind of bad things that happen. She hurts people through this, and she, she, she finds a way to deal with it, and it leads up to this wedding event in the movie whereby this part of her deep within her arises, and a terrible thing happens around the wedding, and she goes through this time of, 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 of extreme angst around uh, who she believes she is, or a part of who she believes she is deep down within her. And I want the lyrics to go up, if we could, for a minute, for the chorus of this song. Um, well, it starts, well, it's not, we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but it starts, the snow glows white in the mountain tonight, not a footprint can be seen, a kingdom of isolation, right? And so the solution to this inner angst that, uh, what's her name? Um, Esther? What? Oh, somebody, no, oh, somebody out there, in, oh, okay, Elsa, okay. Um, Maybe you've heard this song before, I don't know. But it's, it's an, it builds up to this, you know, a kingdom of isolation. Uh, the wind is howling and the storm is swirling inside, I'm not going to sing it, inside me. Don't let them in, don't let them near, be a good, you know, conceal, don't feel. She's saying to herself, the advice she gets about this part of her life deep within her. 
what she thinks is, is core to who she is. And what is the great solution that Esther, is it Esther or no? Thank you, okay. Um, what's the big solution that she finds in her life? Well, put the words up if you can. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. This must come out from within me. This is the most important, truthful part of me. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. Uh, I don't care what they say. Are those words up behind me? Okay, they are. Okay. I don't care what they say. That's interesting, isn't it? Kind of interesting example of a, a rejection of, of hierarchy or authority outside myself. I don't care what they say, what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know. I think the cold did bother her as the movie goes on. I mean, she ends up in an isolated ice palace. And as the song is sung, you know, they do such an incredible job of showing on her face the emotions of, of grief, of anger, of uncertainty, of anxiety that this young woman goes through as she tries to negotiate a part of her life as she sees as the most fundamental and as the most important, and as uh, a fundamental way of understanding who she is. Of course, it, it ties in. It's a great example of expressive individualism and the way in which uh, we hear around us in our culture, in, in our world, that we are called to live this obsession with who I am, this over-obsession with who, be true to yourself, uh, you be you, maybe you've seen that all over social media, follow your heart. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's not good advice overall. So, uh, we're going to come back maybe to her later, but I just hope that we can consider for a few minutes in the book of Ephesians what may be in this cultural moment uh, when who I am as an individual seems so important, and in this cultural moment where many people are struggling with anxiety and angst and difficulty. Uh, by the way, on that Fuller Youth Institute podcast, the other main thing they said that youth struggle with is not only there any, but, but also with, with, with mental health <laughs> and, and how they're coping with living in this world. And many of us, as we go through this world, are, are, do cope with the, the difficulties and the pain uh, as, we, as, we, as, we, as we grow and as we deal with the world around us. And whenever, what our age is, all of us struggle in some way with, with who God has called me to be, what it means as I experience these things in the world. And I hope that today we can rest and just drink as deeply as we can from some of the truths that we see proclaimed and revealed in Ephesians uh, about God's eternity, about who God is, and how that's meant to shape us, and how we're meant to rest in that. That was probably too long of an introduction. Okay, three points. God the Father blessed, has blessed us. There we go. God the Father chose, and God the Father adopts. Verse 3 of Ephesians. Are you ready? 
Oh, it didn't sound very promising. Are you ready? All right. Thank you. Stay with me. First, third verse is, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What do we learn here? We learn that God the Father has blessed us. And we learn two things about God the Father blessing us. We learn about the location of the blessing, and we learn about the nature of the blessing. It's worth pointing out in verse 3 that verse 3 begins with, uh, praise be to the God and Father. And this praise be to God is in Greek, verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one sentence in Greek. You'll see in your English that it's verse after verse after verse, thanks, all uh, broken up. Uh, but it's one verse in, in, in the Greek, and it just kind of rolls on like this wonderful waterfall, this wonderful white water river, whatever you want to call it, this wonderful stream of life and praise and gratitude that Paul just expresses here one thing after the other, praising God, speaking good things about God. And you can see, remember Paul last week, how I, we have a description of who Paul was, how he was small and his legs were crooked, he had a monobrow, he, was, he wasn't, a, he, and we had that whole long quote from last week, he, he, he himself saw himself as the least of the apostles. But here we see Paul's heart. We see praise overflowing from his heart, a heart of gratitude on fire, filled to overflowing about the riches and goodness of God. And it's one whole long sentence in Greek from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. You can just go through your Bible and look how long that goes. But the opening part of this is that it's a hymn of praise. Praise and blessing be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed in the heavenly realms, every spiritual blessing. What's the location of these blessings, the blessing of God the Father? The location of God the Father having blessed us is the heavenly realms. And I hope you, if you have a Bible with you, we can just look. This phrase, heavenly realms, is a phrase that we hear all throughout Ephesians, and the actual grammatical construction of that phrase is unique to the book of Ephesians. And it happens five times, and I'll just quickly leaf through these. We see it in this verse, in, in one verse three. We see it in one verse 20, which says, God exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. We see it in 2 verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Uh, we see it in uh, 3 verse 10. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We see it in chapter 6, the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And so Paul is teaching us here, Scripture is teaching us here, that there is a location which is not geographical, it's not in the atmosphere, it is an unseen world of a spiritual reality. Uh, where forces and principalities are at work that shape and affect what's happening in the world, and where Jesus Christ, the Lord, reigns supreme, where He rules over everything, the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. And it's where I think as, as Christians we are invited to keep our eyes <laughs> as we live in this world. Now, remember the story of... Uh, not, not, S, not Elsa and David, but David and Goliath. 
That's an amazing story about David keeping his eyes on the heavenly places, isn't it? David comes up against Goliath. Goliath is huge, massive, full of armor, undefeatable, powerful, destructive. He can do anything he wants. And David comes against them, the small David. And does David have his eyes on how big Goliath is, how powerful Goliath is? No. David says to him, uh, you come against me with spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. How do you live your life? Do you live your do you live your life looking to earthly places first, or do we live our lives looking to heavenly places? It's that location where God the Father blesses us. The nature of the blessings. God the Father blessed. What's the nature of the blessings? Well, the nature, interestingly enough, of the blessings, and there's many of them as we go through this uh, chapter, we'll see how he, he chose us, predestined, freely gave, lavished His grace on us, purposed us. What, though, is the nature of the blessings that, we're, that the Father is giving us here? What do we learn? Well, we learn that the nature of the blessings are spiritual. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You see, in the Old Testament, we hear a lot about how God blesses His people with physical blessings, with tangible things. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see how God blesses His people with the harvest and with the grain and eventually with the land. And there was a real emphasis on, on, on the nature of that blessing as material. Not only was the nature of the blessing material in the Old Testament oftentimes, but it was also obedience-based. If you follow my way, then I will bless you. It was based often on obedience to God's way. And if you don't obey me, you will not receive these things. We see that all through Deuteronomy. But there's this promise in Jeremiah 31 that God will one day write His law on His people's hearts. And so, the, in Jesus Christ, what we see here is the promise that God is working in a new way in the world, that the blessings that He gives primarily are spiritual blessings, a personal knowledge of God. The revelation of who God is as the creator and maker of all things, forgiveness of our sins, redemption, the promise of hope of fulfillment of all things. And so Jesus doesn't ignore, of course, the physical. Uh, and we're not called to, to live with, with, our, with our heads so high up in the clouds that we have no idea what's going on around us. But Jesus, you know, says, seek first God's kingdom and all these things will be added to you. That's the nature of these blessings, the nature of these blessings. We see, secondly, God the Father blesses us. We saw the location of those blessings, and we see the nature of them as spiritual. And we're encouraged as we live our lives to really consider how we're, where we're looking <laughs> and what we're looking to God for first and how we understand uh, who God is and how He calls us to live. But secondly, we see... God the Father chose. God the Father chose. Now, I'll read this verse, Ephesians verse 1, 4. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. <laughs> okay, this is a hard verse. This, this is a hard verse. I'm going to say that right now. It's a bit of a tricky verse. Uh, it talks about election, God choosing us before the creation of the world. 
can we just look at a few points of this as we, as we consider this? Maybe, maybe this is not hard for you. I don't know. It was hard for me when I was trying to work through this uh, doctrine, through this theology that God chose us before the creation of the world. And I don't know how you react to that in your own mind and heart as that is said, um, but I hope you'll kind of stay with me on this one. There's a bit of a, Tim Keller talks about a bit of a, uh, there's a hard kind of exterior on this, on this doctrine, uh, pre- predestination, election, but if we can just get into it a little bit, there's an incredible, I think, sweetness, an incredible encouragement, an incredible uh, truth for us to, to discover and be reminded of. You know, people see this, He chose us in Him before the creation. When they say, maybe you say, I mean, I was talking about this week to myself uh, and to God, saying, this is like, God, you, you chose us in Him before the creation of the world. That, does that mean, therefore, as I think about this, that you didn't choose other people? Why, am, why would I see myself as chosen or elected and not other people around me in the world? What do I do with this? And so, this idea is immediately for many of us difficult for two reasons. Uh, we see it in some ways as um, maybe, shall we say, uh, arbitrary. <laughs> like, what, what's God doing, you know, doing this? We also see that we see this as, as unjust as well, and, and it's hard to, it, it, we're going we're to look at these questions, and I hope as we look at this question briefly, we'll, we'll be able to, 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 to uh, to get deeper into it. But the first objection people often have with this is that, well, if God chose me, doesn't choose others, where is my free will in this? <laughs> How do I, didn't God also give me free will? And I think one of the ways to consider that is that, you know, our will as human people are, is free. Yeah, we have free will for sure, but only in the sense that it's not coerced will, right? That we uh, live in this kind of fallen world, in this fallen situation, and our condition is such that in a way, we are unable to choose God uh, freely, that we are not able. It's not as if God is coercing us in a way, but it's, it's like we lack, the, um, we lack the, the ability to have the right desires for God. Somebody put it this way. They said, look, around free will, not free will, coerced, not coerced. It's almost as if the human condition is you're sitting at a dinner table and there's two beautiful plates. There's two plates of food. You know, one of them is a fantastic plate of food, whatever that is for you. Uh, it's healthy. And I'm going to just say it's a steak. I'm just going to say that. And there's vegetables on there. And it looks, it just came off the barbecue. Okay. And there's another plate beside you that is the most rotten meat, you know, uh, disgusting whatever you want to put on there, food on there that's leftover, sour milk, yogurt with mold on it. Uh, how, how bad can I think of food here? Just awful. There's a, there's a skunk on there, okay? There's a skunk on that plate, all right? Uh, but, but here's the thing, and, and you're sitting there, and, and uh, the one on the left which has the skunk on it, it, is covered in this savory smell. It just smells so good, you know? And it's like is the human condition is that, is this, is that it just smells so good that we are always drawn to that, and we, we are like, even picture, maybe you're just blindfolded in front of it, and all you can smell is that, is that beautiful, wonderful skunk that you know is just going to taste so good. 
And in some ways, uh, election or this idea of free will is like God, in a way, through what He's done, is taken off that blindfold. It's not that we could know to choose that delicious steak on our, by ourselves. By our human condition, we're set on choosing that awful one that's going to hurt us and make us sick, but we have no ability by ourselves to choose that. It's like God here is taking off the blindfold for humanity, not coercing our will and allowing us uh, to know His way of salvation. But not only is coercion or free will a problem, we sometimes say, well, it's not fair. It's God's not being just. How come God would choose some and not others? And one answer to that, real quick, and this, is gonna, this, is gonna t- this could take forever, but real quick, it's not fair, God. Why would some be elected and not others? Well, start at this point, if we think about it, why do you think that you deserve God's mercy and others don't? In fact, all of us as a people are equally deserving as humanity of God's judgment, aren't we? That all of us as a people are equally fallen, that we're equally lost, that we're equally incapacitated and under God's judgment for sin. But God is God, (laughs) Job has that moment in his life. God is God in the whirlwind. Who are we to say what God should or should not do? In John 21, Jesus and Peter get into this, and Jesus says to Peter, what is that to you, what happens to the beloved disciple John? And so, we must just consider that God in His grace and His goodness freely chooses us. What are the reasons for this? We don't know the the reasons for why some are elected and others are not. And the danger with this doctrine is that we get into this situation where we are so um, taken by human speculation and so taken by trying to reason this out philosophically in our Western minds that we lose its truth and we lose the point of God choosing us a theology, a doctrine, a truth we see all through Scripture from Genesis all the way through to the end of Scripture. We see this is a God who freely chooses some. And the point I think that we need to remember in this is that the doctrine of election is not one that's to make us proud and how much better we may be than another. But instead, the doctrine of election, I think, is meant first and foremost for us to remember this, that we have done nothing to be saved, that we have done nothing to be loved by God, that we've done nothing to make ourselves acceptable to God. If you find yourselves looking to Christ, if you find yourselves believing in the promises of God, if you find yourselves living in the redemption of you, if you find yourself living a holy and blamelessly in His sight, it's because of what God has done. It's because God is in control. It's because God is able. It's because God has blessed and chosen you. And so we're meant, I think, to rest first in this being a promise not a human speculation, not something that makes us proud or feel like we're better than other people. It's meant to be a promise to know that we are first gods, that God has sought us out. Nothing 
on our own will or our own abilities or our own kind, but something all that God has done for us. Of course, we see this earlier in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, you think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But listen to this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So, God the Father chooses Practically, what does this mean for our identities, I wonder, if we just had to think about this? Well, I think a couple things as we journey through life. The first practicality I think that this can help us with is that because we believe in the truth of what is said here, we can be secure in our salvation. We can be secure in what God has done for us. And we go through life, so many things can kind of try to alter our identity, can't they? In fact, so many things can kind of steal our identity. You know, uh, financial hardship, that can steal our identity. We can say, you know, I, I'm no good because of this. The loss of a job can steal our identity. I'm not worthy because of this. A breakdown in a relationship or a marriage can steal our sense of self-worth, our, our sense of being loved by God and others. In fact, we know that where Satan wants us is in the ice palace, right? Isolated, far away, thinking that we are alone and no good. But we must remember that before creation, before time, from ever to lasting to everlasting, God is God. There is this, this moment when the sovereign and loving God, if you find yourselves looking to Jesus today, there's a moment when the sovereign God chose you. And that's part of who God has made you. It's part of who God is and who we are. And nothing that happens in the world can alter it. Second little practicality that we can consider is, you know, when all these defeats and difficulties come in life, uh, you know, with a really hard, we got we to gotta remember that God is sovereign over these things, that God sometimes sends these things, that God is able to transform and use these things for good in our lives. So, if you're battling some kind of demon, some kind of defeat, remember first that God has chose you, is in control of your life and of all things. All right, we got to keep moving. That could be a whole sermon unto itself, but second point, I know. God the Father has blessed us. God the Father has chosen. God chooses us. You're chosen, set aside. And thirdly, what do we learn here? God the Father adopts. Here's one of the great benefits of election, being chosen. We see in love... God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His good pleasure. What do we learn here? We learn here this wonderful benefit, <laughs> one of the wonderful blessings that God the Father has adopts us. That's one of the outcomes of election, one of the ways we're to see our relationship now with God 
the Father. Do you see yourself, do you see your relationship today with God the Father as being adopted in a familial kind of relationship? Or do you see it maybe as, as God still a little bit angry, a little bit upset at you, a little bit distant from you? Uh, here's the thing with the this idea of being uh, adopted, this doctrine of adoption. It's, it's this. There's a difference between a relationship with someone as your son or daughter and son or daughter to father, and there's a difference between that and like a business relationship, isn't there? There's a big difference there. What's the difference? Well, being adopted into someone's family, not only in Roman times, you have all the rights and privileges of someone in that family, but there is a strange logic that is at work in that relationship if it's a familial adoption relationship. And the strange logic that is at work in that relationship is that whereas in a business relationship, uh, you know, if something goes sideways, then the whole thing might blow up and walk away and be canceled and be finished, whatever it might be. But in a family relationship, a father to a son or daughter, uh, that love of the father is not dependent on anything in that child. What they do, what they don't do, that's a free, drawn-in, deep, eternally rooted kind of dignity and security that is rooted not in this world or in Ephesus or Binbrook or Hamilton or Burlington, but it is a truth that is rooted in eternity. There's a little quote there. I don't know who wrote this, but I wrote it down in my notes. God's grip, what does that say? God's grip in us goes back into eternity. I think that's one of the identity keys you can a fourth one you can consider, God's grip on you goes back into eternity. It's out of love. It's out of love that God the Father adopts us. In love, it says, He does this. Deuteronomy 7. Listen to these verses, this promise about God's love. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, He says to Israel, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand. It's because the Lord loved you. Why is it that in any kind of covenantal relationship, someone would be chosen, adopted, drawn into that? Well, it's because they're loved. Uh, again, Tim Keller in his book on marriage talks about this. He says, picture a couple, you know, talking to each other about the, the, the day they were married, maybe a couple years on, and, uh, you know, the husband says to the wife, like, why did you choose me? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, well, and she says, well, I chose you because you were so good looking, you know, it was, uh, it was your six-pack that you had back then. Maybe you don't have it now. <laughs> it was your, it was, it was what, what would she say? Because you're the career you're going to have, that's why I chose you. Or your family connections. That's why I chose you, the wife. Does she say that to the husband? Does the husband say that to the wife? No. They say to each other, I chose you. I married you uh, because I love you. Things will change. Vicissitudes will come. But, but I love you. I am the one for you. 
And we're meant to see God's relationship, the Father, to us in that kind of way. In verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, freely given. It's all a freely given love. It's a free relationship because God chooses to do so. God the Father blesses. God the Father uh, cho- chooses, chose, and God the Father adopts. Real quickly, and Pastor Bill said, I set my timer always, and I did not set my timer this morning. It's 11.30. Two minutes. Can we finish up in two minutes? Can I just talk for a second at the end here about uh, how this really applies to your life and my life when the rubber kind of hits the road? And I think one way to think about it is the difference between um, con- our con- uh, identity that's constructed. Is that up there? Yeah. Constructive identity and biblical identity. That's really what we're talking about here, constructive identity and biblical identity. Constructive identity is rooted in, in me, in my, in what I can find within myself or as I wander around the world. Constructive identity is, is, is how I myself might choose to live. I see myself as the individual, as the highest good. I I see, uh, I see that traditions and uh, hierarchies around me really ought to be deconstructed and held with great suspicion and not necessarily trusted. I see this primary ethic as my own freedom. I must follow my own heart. Of course, a constructed identity is, 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 is some of the things that, that Elsa was going through. Now, a constructed identity has problems, right? It has challenges. And some of the challenges and some of the problems are, are real quick. One of them is that our identities that are constructed are incoherent because my feelings and my heart and following my own truth and my own you, uh, that might change over time, right? Or I might, I might have, I might have uh, one feeling here that bounces up against another feeling here, and which one then must I choose? So there's an incoherent sense to a constructed identity, and it's also unstable because it's always changing. I mean, I change over my lifetime. You change over your lifetime. Things hit us. Things get piled upon us, and so there's an unstable characteristic there. But thirdly, on a constructed identity, there is pressure. There's massive pressure if you are first and foremost basing your self-worth, your purpose, where you're headed on how you yourself find and make up who you are is most fundamental and most. Why is there huge pressure? Elsa had huge pressure. Look at her. She ended up in, uh, in a difficult, hard, angst-driven place. What's the pressure? The pressure is that you always got to keep up with another person you see who's doing better than you. <laughs> You always have to uh, compare yourself to somebody else and say, gosh, I've got to achieve that or get there. And so, there's no rest. There's no rest in your life or in my life if we're always trying to base things on uh, our own self-understanding first and foremost. Of course, the solution is seeing things entirely differently when it comes to our most fundamental self-understanding, which is biblical identity, a covenant God, a God of love and mercy, of grace, a God who's called us, a God who's redeemed us, a God who's forgiven us, a God who's called us into the family of God. In the end, 
what Elsa and what you and what me need the most is, is, is a rescue to be recognized by the loving Father, to hear that we're chosen, to hear that we're adopted, to hear that we're loved, to hear that there's more than what is just inside me. And practically speaking, that is the real challenge that all of us have day to day. How do I allow that truth to just inform me, soak into my thoughts, soak into my words, soak into my decisions? And that's almost like the challenge every day as we see the world, as we see ourselves. We must see ourselves first as loved and recognized by God the Father. We must find our identity first in God's rich eternity. Let's bow down. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you for your word to us. Some of us are just dealing with a lot of pain right now. A lot, a lot of us, or some of us are dealing with a lot of disappointment. Some of us are just floating along and uh, coasting through life and and all's, all's good. For whatever the situation, Lord, we find ourselves in this morning, we thank you that you are God. We thank you for the blessings in the heavenly places. In this week ahead, I pray that you would apply this wonderful truth of your blessing, of your choosing, of your adopting us into each and every life that is here that you may enrich us as your family. You may heal the pain that we have, and that we may know your grace, strength, and the life of Christ in us. For we pray in his name. Amen.